So good morning, everyone. Welcome to our Friday morning sessions. It's been almost a year that we have been doing this. Really remarkable. And uh, John will be here in, as he's in, here in person today. So we, we have that's wonderful. And uh, it's all him today. Uh, I have to, uh, because I have another uh, commitment with the NIH, I have to step out at uh, 8.30. So I won't be hanging out for the questions. But so you have a full hour of, of Dr. Shriver. So go ahead and ask. And I'm sure he'll be happy to answer all of them. And uh, whatever he can get through, he will do it after the, after the session. Just a few announcements uh, from the governor. The, just uh, this is from the sessions briefing notes. Nearly 12% of the state's population has been vaccinated against coronavirus, which is really remarkable. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, we got to give yourself, give ourselves credit for the number of people that have been vaccinated. So we're not quite where we want to be, but getting there. The state's positivity rate, I think John will talk about this, has dropped to 2.3%. That's the lowest in three months, perhaps, John, I think around there. Uh, and that's really good news for, for all of us. Uh, and uh, my apologies to my colleagues in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, but Harvard University's Belfer Center is giving neighboring states, Rhode Island and Massachusetts, an F when it comes to vaccination efforts. Connecticut received an A for vaccination per capita. So, you know, it's a little bit of competition, I suppose. And, and John lives in Massachusetts, although he really is a Connecticut resident now because he's been working for us for, for a long time now. So I'm going to pass it on to him. Uh, be safe, and we'll see you again on Tuesday. Again, I can't hang out for the questions, but you have the expert with you. Bye-bye. Thank you, uh, thank you, Dr. Salazar. Really appreciate it and welcome. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here. And um, I, I think today we're gonna spend uh, 45 minutes on where things are um, with COVID and open up to questions. We often don't have the time uh, to do that, but today we will have time hopefully to answer all your questions. I also wanna uh, thank everyone for what you do. And also um, every week now I get emails from people saying, hey, have you seen this? Have you seen this paper? Have you seen, and there's no way you can cover it all. And uh, it's been a huge help for me actually to help focus where the talk needs to go and what data we need to share. So thank you for all of you who are inputting saying, hey, you should talk about this. You should talk about that. So uh, the pandemic marathon is now a race to vaccinate. Um, and the reason is we have mutations and variants now circulating and the faster we can get to herd immunity and reduce viral replication, the less mutations we're gonna see. And so this is truly a national, it's a worldwide race to vaccinate. No country can be allowed to fall behind because they will generate more cases and more mutations. So we need to think about this globally, but we have our own issues in the United States to solve. So it's the race to vaccinate. I have good news. The United States continues to show a steep decline in new cases. Now, you know, we're still at 100,000 new cases a day, but it's going down very quickly. And my hope is we'll be at around 50, 40, and that's gonna go down. Now, there are risks for a new surge. One would be the post football surge if millions of people all got together in front of the television set and also the more uh, contagious variants. So we, we have to be very measured watching this, but today it's good news. Uh, ditto on hospitalizations, a really important parameter. It's heading down toward 50,000 hospitalized COVID patients. It opens up capacity. Uh, it allows other illnesses to be managed and it reduces the mortality rate for COVID because you can manage each patient with the time that you need. So also very good news. Um, and um, Ditto the actual death rate, which lags all of this, is genuinely going down. It's still a remarkable 2,000 or 2,500 a day.
but it's way down uh, from where it was. And uh, we remain optimistic this will continue to go down. So all, all good news. Now, Connecticut, as um, Juan mentioned, continues to decline. Well, I, I, this is already out of date. This is three days ago, and it's down, uh, as Juan mentioned, below 3%. Now, I do want to say we have a lot of community spread still, and we want to be very careful. This is not where we were yet um, over the summer. We were 1% and less test positivity, but it's a huge improvement, good place to be heading. And the deaths are way down as well. Um, you know, we were getting quite a few daily deaths from COVID that's way down in Connecticut, reflecting the decline in community spread and hospitalizations are declining. Now, that's a little bit slower because many of these people stay in the hospital for weeks who are very sick. So it's a little slower, but again, opening up capacity in Connecticut uh, and um, very important to managing the population for other illnesses that may occur. Now, this is where we were a few days ago. It's already better than this, but remember, um, this is new cases per 100,000. We'd like to be 10 or less. So we have work to do in Connecticut, and I think it's not time to toss the mask in the trash and go to the pub. Um, it's time to maintain our continued discipline. The state has been an amazing state to work with, I think in a very positive way. Get the discipline, drive this community spread down and vaccinate as many as we can. Get a needle in every arm. We will be in a good place come summer, but it's gonna take work. It's not just gonna happen. It will take work and consistency in our messaging to the public. The race to vaccinate in the United States. I, I wish it was an organized, everyone's on the same page. We're all doing it the same way race, but you know it's not and that has created some challenges for us. Now, this is a few days ago, there were 59 million doses delivered in the United States, about 41 million had been given out across the whole country, um, but uh, only 9 million have gotten two doses and are truly immune. I mean, these are not where we need to be. You know, we need to have herd immunity by the summer, that's millions of millions of people need to be immunized, good start, we got to get going. And, and I think, again, if, if every state government looked on this as an urgent race, we would be in a better place. And as you'll see, that's not where we are. These are national immunization rates, and uh, this is the percent of population, darker being better. And there are only a few states that are approaching 10%. Now, actually, Connecticut's above 10% now and 10 to 12%. So Connecticut's one of them. Vermont, West Virginia has done a very good job. They have mobile vans going out to rural areas. They have taken this very seriously in West Virginia. Um, North Dakota as well now has taken this very seriously. They got hammered uh, because they had very lax public health measures. They've taken immunization very seriously. So I think you'll see there are pockets of governments, state governments that are organized and taking it seriously. And then there's a widespread I don't know how else to explain it of either logistical, organizational, or political uh, lack of will uh, to get this done. And Alaska also is uh, among the states leading the United States in immunization, particularly focus focusing on uh, Native Americans in Alaska. Now, I want to talk about our values um, because this is probably changing for COVID-19. If our value, remember, this is a very simplified diagram of what it is, but it's the number of people and on average that one infected person can infect. And look at measles at the bottom. We know that measles is one of the most infectious diseases in the world. 
And it's the reason you need 90% plus herd immunity with immunization to prevent outbreaks because one person can infect 18 people. It's incredible. COVID um, was worse than influenza, but a little bit better than the original SARS. And uh, it was around one person would infect two and a half to three people, our value 2.5 to three. So this is a simplified diagram. Smallpox is worse, mumps is worse, um, but COVID was significant. And, um, and this is the thresholds for herd immunity by pathogen based on that R value. Now, originally, you can see we thought because the R value was two to three, it would be around a 60% of people Im immune by immunization or having the disease, we would reach herd immunity and really have less likelihood of big outbreaks. Because of the UK variant being more contagious, it apparently elevates the R level about 0.5 to 0.7. And that's why Tony Fauci has changed what he said. It's based on new data because as the UK strain spreads, we're gonna to need to have 75 to 80% of the population immunized uh, and immune in order to reach herd immunity. So the bar has moved up. So it's actually approaching, uh, if you look at the um, light green line, that was sort of where the 1918 H1N1 influenza was. We think you needed to get about 75 to 80% um, immunity uh, so that you would really break the back of the outbreak. So this is a challenge. It's meetable because we have vaccines and we're gonna be able to meet this challenge, but the bar has moved a little higher and it's not clear to me that all of the uh, political establishment in various states understands this. Now, um, these are data generated by the CDC. If we um, continue at the current pace nationally, it will take us to September to reach 70% of the population to be immune. Now, everyone in this room and all of you out there, in my view, would say that is not fast enough. And, uh, and in addition to that, we're probably gonna need to meet 80%, not 70%. So we are gonna need to get this race going. And my goal would be hit 70% 70, 70 by July 4th. And actually, I would be out there nationally saying, we're gonna hit 70% by July 4th. That would make it a national campaign by Independence Day, we're gonna be almost at herd immunity, but we're not there, it's not what's happening. These are very important data because you know schools need to open and work needs to get going again and normalcy and all of the things that all of us treasure are not gonna happen until the fall if we don't accelerate this immunization rate. So um, I'm optimistic that we're gonna do it and we're gonna get above a couple of million a day, but we are not there yet. The best states for immunization, the best American territory, Samoa, Alaska, West Virginia, New Mexico, and Connecticut. Top five for, for states, top four for states. Um, and Connecticut's at 11, 12%, uh, really great effort. Uh, New Mexico has really doubled down on this, SS West Virginia and Alaska. So um, uh, these are, these are, this is what every state needs to be doing. And then the worst for immunizations, dead last is Iowa. And I'm gonna show you why that's relevant in a minute. Um, but we have lots of opportunity. Now, I, I, I find it unfathomable why Rhode Island, which has a, had a terrible outbreak, not a very big state, really is struggling with immunization. And by the way, Massachusetts is not much better. I didn't put it there because it was depressing because I live across the border in Massachusetts and I can't get my spouse immunized. It's very depressing, but it is what it is. And we're all emailing the governor and trying to get them. The latest thing in Massachusetts, they've had hundreds of open clinic 
spots because they're running out of 75 year olds. So instead of opening it up to 65 year olds, they've said, we want more 75 year olds. So if you drive someone to the immunization clinic and you're not 75, we'll immunize you as a partner. I don't, so there's emails all over Craigslist, everything's, oh, I need a 75 year old because I want to get immunized. It's nuts. So Connecticut did it the right way. They said, okay, we're, we've got through the 75 and now we're going to 65. It's, it, you know, it's just, I, I don't understand it. Um, I, I wish everyone was doing what Connecticut was doing, but they're not. Now I want to do a case study in North Dakota. So North Dakota, you may remember I showed you two months ago was just solid red, a very bad outbreak, a lot of mortality. Uh, every ICU bed was filled. And, and uh, you know, there was a libertarian approach to public health. It is, it is what it is, but I will say they've taken it very seriously to immunize people. And they've gotten their rates down now. They're in, in, in a much better place. 11 to 12% have gotten the first dose of the vaccine. And North Dakota is working very hard to be where they need to be. Um, and so I think this is good news. Uh, some of the states are taking it seriously. Let me show you Iowa. You may remember that Iowa was solid red. They're in a better place, but not, you know, we're sort of where we are. They need to get more community spread under control. So what I would do if I saw this in Iowa, I'd say, look, you know, let's maintain our public health measures. Let's really accelerate immunization. And in about four weeks, we'll be ready to loosen up quite a bit. That's not what happened. So what happened in Iowa, and by the way, um, Iowa is the worst state in the United States for immunization rates, about 7%, 7.5% has got, have gotten the first dose, about half of Connecticut. So not a great place to be. And the governor lifted all COVID-19 restrictions last week on all businesses. So there are no restrictions. So, you know, and, and the president of the Iowa Restaurant Association praised the order. Quite frankly, it allows us to go back to doing business at a critical time we are one day before the Super Bowl, which opens up a lot of businesses for crowds to come in and watch. So look, you know what's gonna happen in Iowa. There's gonna be a resurgence in Iowa because all public health measures have been, have been limited uh, and, and are gone and uh, immunizations are lagging and immunity is lagging. So it's, it's just not where we need to be as a country and unfortunately every state is doing it the way they feel like. But if I were a public health official in Iowa, I'd be arguing with the governor. To, you could loosen up some things, really focus and double down on getting people immunized, but it's not happening. So what's new for SARS-CoV? That's sort of the national epidemiology. And by the way, I didn't include other countries, but I, I want to give some perspective. Other countries are struggling too. Germany has a big resurgence. They were really on top of this epidemic for many years, uh, many months. And now it's sort of surging out of control and, and they're struggling. And so I think um, the challenges of pandemic exhaustion are, are everywhere in the world. It's not just us, and, and, I, and I think it's important to have that perspective. Now, the SARS-CoV-2 mutations are now in the U.S. This is a gross underestimate. These are CDC data. Remember, the U.K. strain, B117, has that 501 mutation. I'm going to talk a little bit about this because I think all of us as providers and, all, and everybody out in the public needs to understand what these mutations mean. So the UK strain is all over the United States. It will become the dominant strain in the United States probably in four weeks. And it's more contagious than what we've been used to. So again, that's the race. Before the UK strain becomes dominant and we get a surge, let's immunize as many people as we can. And, and each state doesn't, I don't get the feeling, understand quite 
the challenge here, uh, that a real resurgence could occur like it did in the UK if we don't watch this. The South African strain 1351 has multiple mutations. I'm gonna show that to you and um, evades, probably evades immunization. And um, however, it doesn't seem to spread as much as the UK strain. So I think we have time and there will need to be, I'm, I'm pretty sure there'll need to be a booster dose at some point, maybe next year that covers these extra strains. But at the moment they don't spread as rapidly, which is a good thing. And then there's another strain, a P1 strain, which is also in the United States now that also has multiple mutations. And I don't know the data, I don't know if there are any data yet about how immunizations would prevent the P1 strain, we don't know yet. So these are the data right now for uh, the UK strain, B117. And you can see the centerpiece of UK spread is Florida. And um, I probably don't want to dwell more on that. All of you know that Florida has had very limited public health um, management of this epidemic. It's now the center of the UK spread. Um, there's been some discussion about banning travel to Florida. The governor's threatening to sue. It's unconstitutional. There's already a battle going on about this. What I would do is I would really double down with federal help and get everybody in Florida immunized. I'm not sure that's gonna happen. California is another place, but it's all over the country and it's a gross underestimate and, and uh, you just, the UK strain will be the dominant strain shortly. Um, so what is, just again, to reiterate, what are these mutations? The UK strain has a big spike protein mutation at the 501 spot and that's on the red. Um, and that's a binding site for the ACE2 receptor in humans. And you can see, remember that the spike protein is actually a trimer. So that mutation occurs in three places on the spike protein. So um, it's an issue. And uh, this is why at the moment, it doesn't seem to evade um, the vaccines. Uh, we're probably in a good place, but it does reduce the neutralizing antibody effect, but doesn't get rid of it. So the vaccine will probably be okay for this. The South African variant at the same area in the spike protein has multiple structural mutations, binding site mutations, and that's a problem. And you can see there are at least three in three different locations in the spike protein because it's a trimer. So this is why the South African variant seems to evade uh, to a degree um, immunizations of the current vaccines we have currently. And so, you know, um, that's something we're gonna have to watch very closely. It, it's a blessing right now. It doesn't seem to be spreading as fast as the UK variant. And let me show you some data with the South African strain. So in South Africa, they had an AstraZeneca clinical trial, that's the UK adenovirus vaccine. And unfortunately, the efficacy against the South African mutation, which is now dominant in South Africa, was only 25% against mild and moderate disease. Now, I, we don't know if it prevents severe disease yet, but it's not preventing outbreak. The Novavax dropped to 49% against mild disease caused by the variant. We don't know if the Novavax vaccine is preventing severe disease. And ditto Johnson & Johnson down in the 50s. So we don't really know, are our vaccines going to prevent severe disease and death, which would be okay, uh, but maybe mild disease is not controlled or not if this South African strain becomes dominant. So to me, this is showing us we're probably gonna need a booster at some point that covers those multiple mutations of the spike protein. I haven't seen clinical data yet of the effect of Moderna or Pfizer um, in the field. 
uh, against this strain circulating. I've seen some uh, laboratory data, but uh, nothing yet from the field. Uh, now, um, airplanes, right? Let's get immunized, let's go traveling. Um, uh, CDC published a paper, I don't know, looks like it's coming out next week. This is before it came out, showing that in-flight transmission, even with masks and pre-departure testing is occurring. It's an interesting study. What they, these are the dots are people who all went to the uh, UAE, got on an airplane from different parts of the world, got on a single plane that then flew to New Zealand. And um, with one stop where they didn't get off the plane, or if they did, it was just for a little while. And they found that there was a single clone of uh, SARS-CoV-2 that somebody brought on the plane that got transmitted to seven different people. So it occurred in flight. The whole flight wasn't infected, and they have a seating chart and show, you know, it shows you. But this is the time frame after they arrived in New Zealand of the people who got sick. And now New Zealand isolates people, so they caught this. And you can see there was a gradation of people all getting sick with the same clone uh, over a two-week period after arriving into New Zealand uh, from this airplane where it spread. So it is going to happen, and I think this reiterates uh, uh, as we move forward that probably we want people flying who are immunized. There's already controversy about that, and, and uh, I get it. The airlines are struggling, but spread can occur on a plane, and this documents that. When will vaccines be licensed for kids? This is a question I got uh, from some people. And actually, somebody sent me the answer. Thank you very much uh, for doing that. I appreciate it. And this is a table from one of the healthcare systems that got it from, uh, it was updated in January 19th and got it from uh, clinicaltrials.gov where they data mined where all clinical trials in the United States are, are listed. And you can see that the Pfizer is being tested currently 12 to 15. It's, it's licensed for 16 and above. There's a study starting in April for five to 11 year olds and perhaps less than five later in 2021. So we'll probably have data for the Pfizer for 12 to 15. I doubt younger than that until fall. The Moderna is 12 to 17 being studied that'll be done in June. So again, I'm pretty confident um, we'll have some answers about that for 12 year olds and up. AstraZeneca has a study, hasn't even started yet for five to 12 in the UK. And um, there's the uh, Johnson J&J Janssen, which ditto um, is just starting 12 to 17. So we're gonna have to wait. Uh, I do think certainly by the summer, we're gonna know 12 and above. For five and uh, down to five, it's probably gonna be much later in the year to know, maybe even 22. So. Here's where we are with vaccines for kids. Now, um, if you get sick, how long are you protected? This has been a, a long debate. We're not really sure, and we're not really sure how long the vaccine protection lasts. This is an interesting study that came out last week from the UK, and they took a different tack. What they did is they just got all their, a bunch of healthcare workers, lots of them, and then just looked at their blood to see if they were seropositive to COVID-19 had been infected. And then followed them to see how long they no longer didn't get infected or got a positive PCR. So you can see the blue line are people who had positive blood tests for antibodies to spike protein. And the red were the negative healthcare providers. And you can see that over months, if you were seropositive, you were unlikely to have a new positive PCR and get sick from COVID. So it lasted months, six months. 
So again, we're starting to begin to understand a little bit better immunity, duration of immunity, and, and what this is all going to mean. Now, I will say there are also a study I didn't show you today that came out that is showing that there's a 90-day decline of antibodies um, after you're infected. And uh, we already knew that, but it looks like even with that decline in this study, you were still protected against getting a positive PCR or COVID if you had been previously infected and for six months. So I found this uh, good news. Um, late breaking CDC updates, upgrade your mask. You can see I have a, uh, this is sort of a, a commercial N95 that I bought on the internet. Um, from an American company that's having trouble selling them. You may have seen that in the news and you can buy them. So I bought it. Um, the CDC is suggesting because the UK strain has a higher R value, binds better to the ACE2 receptor, upgrade your mask, use multiple layers, particularly if you're going out in the public or, or wherever. So I think um, this is important. We're figuring out whether this is gonna change what we do in the hospital. Probably not because we're screening before you walk in the door and this kind of thing, but we're thinking about it. So. But use mask layers and improve your mask fit uh, are official recommendations from the CDC. The other update up, up is very promising, and I think it's helping us move to a good future. The data suggests that properly vaccinated persons do not need to quarantine after exposure if it's within that 90-day period when your immunity is the best. So the CDC now is saying if you're fully vaccinated and more than two weeks past your second dose, remember, you, you can't do it right after your second dose, two weeks after your second dose, and you're within three months of having the vaccine, if you're exposed, you don't need to quarantine unless you have symptoms. So um, this is a big deal. It's going to help hospitals and essential personnel um, all over the country because if they're immunized properly, two weeks after the second dose and within 90 days, and they're exposed, they can still go to work. Now they're basing this on data that suggests that transmission is reduced among properly vaccinated persons. It's not eliminated, but it looks around 60 to 70% reduction in a couple of different studies. Uh, and um, the data are not complete, but it, it is what we have right now. And the CDC moved to this because they felt that it would allow our workforce uh, to better get back to work and quite frankly, um, loosening up a little bit on some of the recommendations with pandemic exhaustion seemed to be the right thing to do. A lot of people saying, well, if I'm immunized, what the heck's the point if I can't get back to work and I'm not going to get sick and I'm exposed? So I think uh, this is a move forward. We have to watch closely and you have to be asymptomatic. Uh, and if there are questions on this, we can talk about it. Um, now, the United States, unfortunately, continues to endure this bizarre politicization of public health. And you've seen, you know, we have tremendously uneven application of public health measures state by state, and frankly, even within states. So in Iowa, the Des Moines mayor was so upset with the governor's order that he counteracted it and said, you still have to wear masks in Des Moines. So you've got segments of the state that aren't even agreeing with each other. So how are you ever gonna control the outbreak in that situation? There's a lot of um, pandemic denial and vaccine misinformation. It's very active. I'm going to show you some stuff. And um, it really requires us to be calmly consistent. Hey, these are the facts. This is the risk benefit of why I took the vaccine. Let me explain to you. Gee, these are the people I saw sick and how bad the disease is. I think it's very important that we explain. I actually did in our small town. I, I write a, a column for them, and there were a number of the uh, workers in town, highway department, and others who were very uneasy about the vaccine. 
And I just talked to them about, you know, we, we, in the column, we talked about the risk benefit. And a lot of them ended up getting immunized. And I think we're going to need to go ahead and continue to do that because there are forces that are actively misinforming the public. It just is where we are today. There's tremendous lack of message consistently still from elected officials, some of whom openly flout public health measures. There's a doctor in Congress who does this. I mean, it's, it's, it's discouraging because really we need a consistent message to our public. It's, it's not about control. It's not about who's gonna be in charge of the country. It's about getting back to normal as fast as possible. And then honestly, there is tremendous economic impact. I, I watched the restaurants in our town struggling and people losing their life savings. And there, there is enormous stress on everyone about this. And so the support for continued mandates is weakening. So this is where we are. And because of all this, it, to me, let's get immunizing even more. I mean, that's the answer, right? Everybody needs to get immunized. Here's an example of um, a poster that was placed in Washington during the demonstrations saying COVID-19 is a false flag operation to usher in the new world order. And then they have the Mason sign and they are forging death certificates. So I know that's the, that Dr. Salas and I late at night were running over to the hospital and forging death certificates. It's nuts. I mean, of course, nobody's doing this and it's just craziness. But the people who really believe this and lots of them really believe this. And it's an enormous, do your research. You know, every, all these 500,000 people who died, it's not real, except for those of us who've lost people. I mean, it's, it's nuts. So, um, but it's there. And there was a new video on this that had 30 million international hits until it was removed um, uh, from the platform it was on. So part of the challenge we're facing. Here's InfoWars. I love going to this website because it's run by Alex Jones, who is truly one of the more malicious of the rumor mongers. He has a big website. And this one, read closely, is somebody with a mask covering his entire face. And it says, um, fed up Americans are standing up to COVID um, gaslighting mask hoax. So wearing a mask is a hoax because there's no epidemic. You don't really need to do it. So all the CD recommendations of, of improving it because the, the science shows you there's a new strain that's more contagious doesn't matter. It's a hoax designed to muzzle you. So a lot of people see this stuff, they get confused, and it's important for us not to judge, but to guide them to a better place that's run by facts. And this is, I think, to me, one of the enormously unanticipated challenges of this epidemic that I never would have anticipated five years ago when the Ebola stuff was happening. Here's an example of an elected official deliberately giving mixed messages to constituents to obtain political gain. This guy in Congress has this mask saying, I'm just wearing this so I don't get fined because, you know, Pelosi's fining the Congress people don't wear masks, right? So it's a big statement. I'm only wearing this mask because I won't get fined. Well, look carefully. Under that mask is an N95. So that's telling you this congressman knows very well that he could get infected, that it's a bad disease, and he's going to protect himself. But he's wearing this mask. If you don't look carefully, yeah, it's another hoax. You know, this guy's right. You know, he's, he's, he's leading, misleading his constituents deliberately for political gain, yet protecting himself. And this is Representative Thomas Massey, Republican Kentucky. So in my view, unacceptable, but it's where we are right now as a country, and it's why we have stumbled in managing this.
Now, this was during the demonstrations, uh, January 6th, uh, the COVID-19 vaccination causes death. And actually, this is a very nice blackboard. It's very artistic. They're little skulls uh, drawn and bones and things. It's, um, you know, somebody spent a lot of time drawing this out. Vaccination equals death. Um, and, you know, here's a cartoon. So the facts don't really matter. So the cartoon says logic, facts, data, reason, science. And the doctor's saying, well, they, and the, they put all this into the vaccines. And the public anti-vaxxers saying, well, I don't trust those ingredients. I don't trust facts, science, data, reason, or logic. And the re reality is that's where many people are. So as public health people and providers and nurses and all of us out there and in the public, everyone listening to this, it's going to be more than just telling people the facts and data to convince those who fear the vaccine. We're going to have to do better than that. It's going to have to be anecdotes. It's going to have to be stories. It's going to have to be the risk benefit in talking people out and reducing the fear and helping them get to a better place because they have been uh, misinformed so strongly uh, it's, they, they don't trust that these are really facts and this is really science and data and reason. Somebody's manipulating it all and I don't trust it. So this is an important point. And I think in the past we felt perhaps we would just present the science and the facts and data and people would get it. That's not correct currently and we're going to need to manage that to get to that 80% immunization place. This is another cartoon, um, herd immunity. Bunch of elephants all going in one direction. No masks, unproven drugs, hoax, conspiracy theories, anti-vax. Well, we've reached herd immunity from common sense, that's for sure. And you can see one of the elephants is th thinking that. That's kind of where we are. You know, we've reached herd immunity from common sense. So it's because of all this crazy stuff that's been going on. So we're going to need to really kind of get the train back on the common sense rails. And that means, you know, you don't need to shut everything down to get you know, a, a surge under control, you, you're, you, you can do measured things based on data. And I think it doesn't have to be all or none. And, and this is where we have to help guide uh, political officials to the right place because they're so scared of further economic damage. In my opinion, you know, we're fighting a war. Um, and uh, you can imagine if we had fought World War II with 50 different states doing everything different to, based on politics, we did not fight the war like that. And uh, every elected official should be holding up the masks as a national goal so that we prevent spread while we immunize everybody. Mm -hmm. And it should be our national goal to immunize. I mean, there were billboards during World War II with things like this, and this is where we need to be. Every, every political person needs to be saying, do it, get immunized. We're gonna get back to normal if you do that. Instead, as you saw, we continue to have manipulation of the public and it's, it's very sad. So the good, the bad, and the weird, and then this time we have lots of time for questions, which will be great. Good news, lots of decline in new cases, hospitalizations, and deaths across the United States. We're heading back to a good place. Immunizations with the two RNA vaccines are reaching more than a million people a day, and the J&J &J vaccine will probably be licensed soon as well. It's a single dose and uh, stores much easier and allow us to get it out into areas where maybe there are not a lot of hospitals in rural areas. Um, so, you know, we have the tools now we need to break the back of this pandemic. We just have to get it done. The more contagious UK mutant is all over the United States now, and it will be everywhere. And we're going to need to manage that and accelerate immunization and maintain common sense public health measures. The South African mutant I mentioned, um, it does partially evade current vaccines. 
we'll have to figure out whether we need a booster dose. So it looks like we had a little uh, mess up on the slide here. And despite facts and data and science and excellent vaccine results, uh, the deliberate um, politicization of the pandemic continues. And we as public health people and providers and all of us in the community who embrace facts and science and want to get back to normal as fast as we can are going to need to manage this uh, and, and really help inform our families, our members, uh, neighbors, everyone, uh, what the facts are, what the risk benefit is, be transparent and honest and begin to pull people back into the, a good place where they need to be. Again, thank you for, for all of your input over the last couple of weeks. I've had a lot of emails with suggestions of things to cover. I'm sorry I couldn't cover all of them, uh, but we got a lot of them done that people suggested and let's open it up uh, for questions now. And again, thank you. This is good. Let's stay here. Yeah. So you're going to, you uh, and Marie, uh, Dr. Salazar is at another meeting and, uh, and Marie, if you want to read, you go through the comments and just pick out the ones that. Good morning, everyone. So I will channel my best Dr. Salazar in processing these questions um, for Dr. Shriver. So we will start with the first one. Um, which is um, ha uh, for a, a physician who has a 14-year-old uh, patient who would like to enroll in a Moderna, in the Moderna vaccine study, um, where would she be able to register her to do this? On the NIHclinicaltrials.gov NIH website. I don't know uh, where it is, but that will tell you. So there's an NIH.gov website for clinical trials in the United States. Go there, and they usually tell you, um, you know, who the contacts are for those. Great. Um, it is a little confusing when one looks at the CDC um, high-risk criteria for the vaccine. They are adult-oriented. The AAP list has fairly vague criteria such as genetic syndrome. Do you have a source or guidance of where we can look for more specific pediatric guidance? Uh, the CDC recommendations are where we're going to follow. Now, obviously, um, clinicians and providers managing complex children who are the right age to get immunized and licensed with a licensed vaccine, there's going to be some interpretation there. So we're going by the CDC list, and I agree with you, there's some room for interpretation. And um, as soon as the Connecticut uh, DPH allows us, we'll be immunizing our high-risk children who are where the, um, they're old enough, 16 and above, if we have the uh, Pfizer and 18 and above for, with the Moderna. Remember, we also don't control which vaccine we have at each time. So there may be time periods where we only can immunize 18-year-olds and above, and there may be time periods where we have Moderna where we can immunize 16 and above, and the state and the federal government control that supply chain. We don't. But we're using the CDC list. It is open to interpretation. I, I don't think that's a bad thing. It's allowing us as clinicians um, both primary care and specialists to try to figure out who on that list needs to get vaccinated first. And I'm confident that we'll be starting patients probably the next couple of weeks in Connecticut. Forget Massachusetts and Rhode Island right now, but I think in Connecticut the next few weeks. Thank you. Uh, you did touch on this in your talk, but um, the question has come up again with regards to the CDC recommendations regarding fully immunized um, people and uh, the need for quarantine. Do you want to just um, sure. emphasize that one? And, more you know, Anne-Marie, you might want to pull the microphone a little closer to Yeah, great. Great. So um, the CDC guidelines came out earlier this week revising that if you're immunized properly, so properly means two doses with the time period, and then you have to wait two weeks after your second dose to reach full immunity. 
If you're exposed to a known case two weeks after your second dose, you don't have to quarantine. Now that also has to be within a 90 day period because there's still some anxiety about waning immunity. So two weeks after your second dose, within 90 days of having been immunized, if you're exposed to a positive case, you don't have to quarantine. So that's the official CDC guidelines. We will be implementing that at Connecticut Children's and it will help our workforce because we have the still community spread. It will help us keep our workforce going. That's based on incomplete data suggesting about a 60 to 70% reduction in people who develop positive PCRs after being immunized. It's not a full study yet looking at transmission, but those are the data we have and the CDC felt comfortable enough that there was a significant reduction in acquisition of, of subclinical infection that it was going to be okay to loosen up a little bit and allow people to return back to work uh, after exposure if they've been properly immunized. I have no doubt this will sow some confusion uh, across the country, but um, I, I do think it's a good move forward. Great, thank you. When you speak of percent population for herd immunity, are you including children? Would it be not would it not be most appropriate to get the adults most quickly vaccinated as the children aren't as effective spreaders? Um, so the answer is that 25 percent of the United States are children. And those herd immunity data include children. It's a challenge for us. That's why it's so important that we move as fast as we can to get vulnerable adults and other adults immunized. Yes, transmission among children is less, but it's not none. So if you have a non-immune adult population, children can potentially transmit to that and you will not get the surges and the outbreaks under control. So the answer is they are part of herd immunity that's required to break the back of this pandemic. And you know from what I showed you, there's gonna be a delay to getting to that uh, place because the pediatric immunizations won't be available till late summer and the fall. So, you know, there's some challenges that we have with that. I can't, I, these are, I'm glad you put those up, but you know, um, to me at this distance, uh, it's Sanskrit, but um, it's good. Anne-Marie? Sure, thank you. Given the current positivity rates and the new variants, what would you advise for local schools who wish to move back to a five-day in-person schedule beginning in March? You know, I think um, local schools, and from what I've seen, uh, the DPH guidelines, and now the CDC is coming out with good guidelines. I think schools are going to be okay if they separate kids and masks are worn and people are washing their hands and they're careful. The data have shown that spread in the schools occurs, but it's much lower than community spread. So um, I, I think the other thing I would want to do would be to immunize teachers because some teachers are older and some have predisposing conditions. And I would want to make sure that our workforce managing children are protected. So, but I think we can get there. And, and I think the data suggests so far that schools that are properly managed with good public health measures are not major spreaders of COVID, which is very good news for us. Thank you. I have a few pediatric patients that have had COVID and now need clearance to return to gym. Do you have any guidance on this? Well, our uh, cardiologists um, have been working hard uh, to develop a guideline for that, and I believe it's on our intranet. So I'm going to ask Liz to find that, and we'll post it for you. There, we have a pathway now of when you need to get an EKG and when it's not and, and those sort of things. In general, mild covid um, kids were fine, they had a sniffle, never got very sick. We're not doing much unless there's something else going on with them on physical exam. 
severe COVIDs, um, we are following them up and, and, and in terms particularly looking at heart and making sure that there have no problems there. Now to reassure people, I did, I think I showed this to you two weeks ago, there was a study looking at 145 student athletes who had mild to moderate COVID, not severe, mild to moderate COVID. And only two out of 145 had an abnormal cardiac MRI showing myocarditis, so it was 1%. It wasn't zero. So I think in general, mild COVID is probably not going to give residua that you would challenge you for going back to gym and sports. I think severe COVID will. We have it on the internet. It's a, it's a nice uh, uh, path, and we will post. Uh, we'll tell everyone where to get that. Now. Thank you. Dr. Zalneritis asks, can we, re can we use the same vaccine processes used for the influenza variants for SARS-CoV-2 virus? So it's a good question. So remember, the influenza vaccine is more complex in that it, the technology is older. They, they grow up whole virus. They survey the world for new strains. Then they grow up the virus in eggs or in tissue culture. And then you, you're getting a killed virus vaccine or a flu mist, which is an attenuated viral vaccine. Um, this vaccine technology we're using so far in some ways will be much easier because we're using RNA that's synthesized. So all you need to do is synthesize new RNA that encodes for the protein's differences in the spike protein mutation. A ditto uh, with uh, both the RNA vaccines, same thing can be done with the, the uh, um, AstraZeneca DNA vaccine with adenovirus. And the spike protein that Novavax is making recombinant insect cells, I showed you insect cells, they can tweak that and they can crank out spike protein. That's the South African variant. So, Ed, I think we've come a long way and it will be faster to create um, vaccines that pick up the modifications we're seeing in SARS-CoV-2. I'm also reassured if we just tweak a few amino acids or there are a few nucleotides that code a few amino acids, I don't think the FDA is going to require a whole new study. I think we'll be able to use the same data we already have and move right to the variant um, uh, vaccine. So I'm feeling good about the new technologies, quickly finding uh, 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 vaccines that will cover the new mutants and getting it out to people. Then they have to manufacture it, and then, and then that's the challenge. You have to manufacture millions and millions of doses. But um, I think getting there will be faster. Thank you. Your graphs seem to show that both Iowa and North Dakota were not having a first surge in March. Isn't it possible that their bad surge recently occurred because they weren't burdened with the first surge last March, April, May that we incurred here? That's a great, I think, I think yes. I think the answer is correct. They had a horrible uh, surge uh, a few months ago. They never really suffered under the first, and the population was totally non-immune because they never had been uh, uh, very sick in the first surge. So I think the answer is yes. The problem is, um, by relaxing everything all at once and knowing that you haven't reached herd immunity in the state and lagging behind in vaccines, and now the UK strain is in Iowa, you're just asking for a resurgence. But yes, I think you're correct in terms of the initial surge, sparing a lot of the Midwest. Thank you, Dr. Schreiber. So there are um, about three or four more questions having to do with the new CDC uh, recommendation with regards to foregoing quarantine if you're fully vaccinated. Um, and um, I think maybe talking a little bit more about the transmissibility um, is, is the gist of this because the question is coming up quite a few times. So, so the, um, the vaccine data we, sh we saw earlier from Moderna and Pfizer and AstraZeneca, what that's following is clinical infection and severity of illness. 
Some of them are following whether you turn PCR positive. And that's where we got the 95% efficacy in clinical trials. There was a lot of COVID around. The vaccine recipients didn't get sick and didn't get uh, clinical COVID. The placebo recipients got a lot of clinical COVID. The efficacy of preventing clinical infection was quite good. What they didn't follow in many of those early studies that generated the protection data was every vaccinated person getting a weekly PCR, for example, or every vaccinated person following their family to see if anyone got sick in the family. It really wasn't done. It's being done now. Um, and so we didn't know and still don't fully know if you're immunized and uh, immune, could you still get the infection in your nose and your throat, not feel sick and transmit it to somebody who's vulnerable and non-immunized? We don't know the answer. We have preliminary data that are pretty good now where they are starting to follow PCRs on people immunized to show it looks like there's about a 65% reduction in acquiring um, PCR positive COVID after you're immunized compared to a placebo. Pretty good, but it's not zero. So that's why we're still saying until we understand this better, wear your mask, wash your hands, use caution because we still think there could be some transmission. Now the CDC guidance from the way I take it for healthcare providers and essential personnel, if you're, you're wearing a mask anyway, um, if you're exposed and you're properly vaccinated, it's two weeks after and you're immune, the likelihood you're gonna transmit is not zero, but very low. If you're in a work situation where you're wearing a mask and a PP and any, everything anyway, the likelihood of transmission in the workplace is extremely low. We can get people back to work faster. Don't quarantine after you're exposed. That's how we're looking at it at Connecticut Children's. But I agree, it will provide, I, I am sure there will be some confusion nationally about how to do that. But that's, that is the data that we know and why the decision was made. And I think um, I'm interpreting it for my family right now um, that there's still a chance I could transmit. And I live with a vulnerable spouse um, who's non-immune and can't get immunized in Massachusetts yet. Um, and uh, I worry because it's not zero. It's not 100% that I don't transmit. There's, there's possibly I could. I think everybody needs to keep that in their head. So it's not 100%. Transmission is stopped by the vaccine. It looks like it's reduced by the vaccine a lot. So that's why the decision was made to allow people to go back to work they're wearing masks, they're in a controlled circumstance, um, it's gonna be fine. But I think in terms of my home situation and others, all of you need to think this out, it's not 100% prevention of transmission and acquisition. And uh, one, would, one would wanna be very careful. You wouldn't wanna get immunized and run to the nursing home and see your 100 year old mother and take your mask off. I think that would not be what I would do. You have to be very cautious still. Thank you. Are people told that they have the UK strain? If so, how much longer after the PCR test is it identified and is it in Connecticut? Great question. First off, I'll answer the last part first. Yes, it's in Connecticut. And I can assure you it'll be the dominant strain in Connecticut in four weeks. I will say um, also that we are not surveying enough. So the answer is no. Most positive COVID patients or people out in the community, we are not sequencing COVID to see if it's UK or not. It's very selective. The capacity, we have not been doing a good job with this nationally. The CDC's ramping up, the states are ramping up, it's expensive. 
we're getting to a point we're going to be surveying much more aggressively, but we are not currently. So the answer is no, you won't know. And uh, the state is sampling selectively isolates as they come in, small number, and you get, a, you get an epidemiologic measure of about how much it would be in the state. So in my opinion, we're under surveying for this. We should be very aggressive about this and we need to ramp up the surveillance and genetic sequencing of COVID isolates all over the country. We're trying to do that, but it's still, uh, we're still lagging in what we need to do, honestly. Thank you. Dr. Ramirez says you're doing a great job. Thanks for all you do. Um, he, would like, <laughs> um, he would like to know why the COVID vaccine is studied at different ages grouped for different age groups. For example, one study group in within the Pfizer study uh, will look at children ages 12 to 15 years old. Why not age 11? What is the rationale for studies down to age five? Why not, why not age four? Yeah, I mean, I can't answer that. I, I, um, I agree with you. It's arbitrary. My bet would be there were some data suggesting those were cutoffs that would be useful. You know, kindergarten is generally five. I can't answer that. I, I think uh, some clarity on why would be useful, but at the moment, I don't know why they didn't give it to 12 year olds to begin with because, you know, it seemed like it would be fine. So I, I can't answer that. I, I wish I knew, but this is what we're doing currently. Thank you. Can we use antibody tests to tell a patient they are, are or are not protected from getting infected again? I'm sorry, um, I'm actually reading. Can we use antibody tests to tell a patient they are or are not protected from getting infected again? Um, we have not been doing that because we don't know the level of antibody that's protective yet. So the answer is you could do an antibody test that would tell you whether you were positive or negative, but we can't do the test that would say I'm protected for sure and I'm not. We don't have enough immunologic data yet. Now I do wanna answer, there was one that was just posted you could go to the one anonymous. Uh, okay, here, I want to read this because I think, it's, I think it's a very fair comment and I want to answer it. The truth is no one knows the long-term effects of the um, mRNA vaccines. So it's unfair to disallow feelings of some who are not high-risk persons who feel the unknown threat of a new quickly approved vaccine as opposed to achieving natural immunity, which is also contributing to herd immunity. I, I, I think that's a, a great point, but I, I, want to, I want to flush that out for you a bit. There is no question this disease is 12 months old. We need to be totally transparent. This has never been in humans except for 12 months. The vaccines are 10 months old. So the reality is to be transparent, you're right. Most vaccines, we have five years, six years of experience and you understand that much better. These vaccines, we have thousands and thousands of people. Now millions of people have gotten it but five years down the road, long-term effects, you're correct. So I've been saying this at, at almost every one of our um, sessions together. To me, it's a risk benefit analysis in your head. And I don't, I don't fully agree with you that, um, well, I'm healthy and I just get natural infection, it's fine. There's two or three reasons why I don't agree with that. The first off is a lot of healthy people randomly are getting really sick and dying. We don't understand this. Um, you see it in the news. You know, there was some 40-year-old congressperson who died. We don't get it. And the truth is, um, this is not influenza. It is an unpredictable, strange virus that damages your blood vessels and your kidneys and other and heart. We don't know, and here's an, we don't know the long-term effects of natural infection. 
Are you going to have high blood pressure because of this? Are you going to have renal failure because of this? Are you going to have myocarditis because of this? So, and so the virus long-term effects are not good. And you're reading about these people who are sick for six months now, healthy young people. So I'm concerned. I'm not sure the long-term effects of natural infection are understood. And the one, what we are seeing is bad. The RNA vaccines, you're correct. We have been given to millions of people. We don't have 20 years experience, 10 years experience, five years experience. But in my head, I did the risk benefit in my head. So natural disease, and I'm, I, the same risk benefit will be for my children who are in their 30s. And they've already thought this out. They're going to get immunized. The natural disease is unpredictable. Um, I don't want to have long-term chronic disability. And the data so far, and the theoretical data of the RNA, which only lasts like a day in your body, it gets completely broken apart because it's so, that's why it has to be frozen, it's so unstable. The spike protein is very immunogenic, but that goes away in a day or so too. So the, the theoretical, the science, the data would suggest the long-term effects of the, of the vaccine will not be zero. Some people, there's always one in a million person will have a side effect. Any medicine, penicillin, one in a million will have anaphylaxis. Any medicine you take is not 100% safe. It's not possible because people are variable and there'll be one in a million who have some reaction to it. Even if you take Benadryl, there'll be one in a million who have some bad reaction to it. But to me, the natural disease um, so far we've seen is bad. Many young, healthy people are getting chronic disease from it. And to me, the risk benefit falls on, oh my God, take the vaccine. But every person has to do that in their head. And I think to your point, if it comes out to you that you decide that it's not, then don't take the vaccine. I would also make the point that, however, if you don't get it, and you do get sick and you transmit it to others, you do have the chance of killing somebody and you have the chance of not having the country get back to normal. So the more people who choose not to get it, the more we're gonna have economic havoc and the country's not gonna get back to normal. So again, that's the patriotic piece. So, and that's just in my head, it doesn't have to be in everybody's head. So that's how I came out to take the vaccine. And I think every person has to do that. I totally agree with you. And I think you brought up a very good point, but I wanted to answer it fully. And thank you for bringing it up. Keep going. Driver, and we are at time, and I can't imagine a better note to finish on than reminding everyone the importance of getting their vaccine. Um, thank you for being there. Thank you for what you do, whether you're a parent, a school nurse, doctor, a nurse practitioner, whoever's out there. Uh, Connecticut has done great. I appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you for sending me suggestions and comments. Uh, and we will do our best to continue to answer them as all of us go through this. And we are going to get out on the other end and we will be back to some normalcy. And you can see that curve. We are heading there. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Schreiber. And we will see everyone Tuesday morning for Grand Rounds. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye-bye.